Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Basketball is back, and BetOnline remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports and events, whether that's NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, or even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. This is episode 44. We have uh, two very special guests with us, and this is episode 44 of season four. Two very special guests with us today. We have John Stoller, who is an attorney, sports entertainment attorney based out of Florida. And then we have Zachary Lewis, who is an NFT attorney uh, based out of Los Angeles. So sit back and enjoy this week's show. So we have uh, two very special guests with us today. We have Zach Lewis, who is uh, based out of Philadelphia. Uh, He is a NFT uh, attorney. And um, his official title is Blockchain NFT and Interactive Entertainment Attorney at Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Sells. Did I say that right, Zach? Yep. I actually am located in LA now. I've, I've since moved from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. So here we go. Oh, good man. I love it. And if you, and, uh, if you haven't seen his, uh, his LinkedIn profile, it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic. And he's got a great uh, NFT up there uh, with his profile picture. Um, and then we also have a dear friend of mine, colleague of mine. We've been friends, I don't know, for probably for almost close to a decade now. Uh, Jonathan Stoller, he is based out of uh, Orlando, Florida. Uh, he runs Stoller Sports and Entertainment Law. And uh, he is just a, a wonderful human being. He's also a professor at Concordia University in St. Paul, uh, where he teaches uh, sports law. Uh, had a very has had a very distinguished career uh, uh, up to this point, and and I'm sure will continue to. Uh, and Zach as well. Zach is um, uh, recently licensed in California, but has had uh, Zach. You've been practicing in Pennsylvania for 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 a while though too, right? Yes. Now I'm a, I'm a I was licensed in 2019, so it's been about three years. Awesome. And Zach and I met through another colleague of mine, uh, Jacob Martin, or I guess a colleague of ours who does NFT work as well, and um, had Zach on a panel down in um, San Diego at the California Lawyers Association um, uh, annual meeting. So let's sort of start with this. John, let's sort of start with you. How did you get your start in sports and entertainment? What are you currently working on? Uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll go to the same question uh, for Zach. We all can agree. We all like sports. So I, I always was around sports, playing it, watching it. 
uh, entertainment too. I, I, I used to act and sing and my sister does still. Um, so I always enjoyed being in that space. So I knew I wanted to work in there initially thought sports psychology, but went to Syracuse undergrad for their sport management program because they have a great one um, and really just hit the ground running when I was on campus and getting involved on campus and off campus with things. Um, but I knew right away too, that I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to be an agent, but also have the law degree and license to practice so I can have more opportunities out there. Um, Cause I'm sure Jeremy's taught you guys, you don't necessarily have to go to law school to be a sports agent, but it does give you just a leg up on your competition. Um, so I knew that like within my first semester on campus as a freshman at Syracuse. So I kind of had very much tunnel vision with going to law school, minoring in law, um, really not expanding like my uh, search, um, which I always advise against when students ask me. Um, so I, I, I would say, do as I say, not as I do in that sense. Uh, I was very narrow-minded in that sense as far as what I wanted to do. Um, but when I went to law school and met Jeremy, and Jeremy was a great mentor for me, not only you know, in the sports law field, but also just getting to know the legal field of South Florida. For those of you that do decide to go into law, you'll see it's a very, very tight-knit community, uh, especially in the local area where you're practicing and living, but also, you know, it expands beyond that. So um, I was able to get good experiences in other areas of law that I can practically use now while I had run my practice. So um, I worked for a couple agencies and firms, um, between law school and where, you know, where I am now with my firm and got great experiences and was able to pick up things that I would do when I run my firm and things I would not do, you know, for how to run my firm. So um, 2020, right before the pandemic hit is when I went out on my own, um, knock on wood, it's, it's been going strong and growing since. Um, and I was fortunate enough to bring some clients with me from my old firm. So um, I do a lot of contract work, trademarks and copyrights. Um, I do some NIL as well. So I work with some college athletes as well. I'm sure Jeremy's talked about that in your class. Um, and then just general civil litigation. I'm a certified mediator as well. So um, I don't want to go into too much detail. I want to give Zach some time to talk. So that's kind of the Cliff's Notes version. I had, Thanks, uh, I had sort of the opposite experience. I really had very little idea what I wanted to do with my career, especially as a lawyer. Um, I was clerking out of law school for a judge at the Superior Court of Pennsylvania. And in 2021, I started collecting NFTs just for fun. Um, around that time, I had a near-death experience that got me thinking I should quit my job and do something I was really passionate about. Um, and once I started to understand how NFTs and blockchain technology was going to disrupt all these different industries that I care so much about, like music and fashion and video games and, and sports, um, I decided that this is what I was going to do. And I thought to myself, you know, if it takes me a few years for people to understand what NFTs are and why being a lawyer in this field is important, that's what's just going to happen. Um, I wasn't expecting to, you know, move out to LA right away. I wasn't expecting to be working with some of the biggest, you know, brands and creators in the world on their blockchain projects. But um, since I, uh, since I discovered NFTs and decided this is what I was going to do, um, I started an online community for lawyers who are interested in this. Uh, and it turns out that one of the top experts in the country joined my Discord server, said that he was you know, looking to post a job ad in there for someone who knew about NFTs. And I said, feel free, but I'm going to send you my application. Fast forward a few months later, I moved out to LA. Uh, and now I work with, like I mentioned, video game developers, fashion brands, filmmakers, artists, and all types of companies on their forays into 
not only blockchain technology and NFTs, but also the metaverse and interactive entertainment. So a lot of the value that I add comes from helping clients understand technical concepts and inventions like NFTs, the metaverse, digital wallets, cryptocurrency, Web3. Um, but I work well on a lot of tech transactions, IP agreements, <clears throat> entertainment and brand deals, marketing agreements, privacy policies, and terms of service for different platforms. And it's all related to NFTs. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to stick with you, Zach. How did you get into the, the NFT space and maybe um, talk a little bit about uh, NFTs and what they are and um, sort of uh, how your work sort of crosses over with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I got into the space initially as a speculative investor. There's no uh, way to deny that. I saw that the digital art market was booming with a project called CryptoPunks. I decided I was going to buy one, decided not to buy one. A few weeks later, saw that the value had 10x, and I thought to myself, I'm not going to let that happen again. Um, then I started to understand, again, what NFTs actually are. I thought it was just digital art until I realized that they are, um, you know, entries on distributed ledgers, which are blockchains, right, that allow the public to have a source of truth for verifying authenticity and tracking ownership, right? So now the technology is used to uh, authenticate luxury goods. They're used for uh, ticketing. They're used, um, I'm sorry, I was getting a bunch of emails. They're used uh, all kinds of ways to give um, creators and fans a better connection. So people are using NFTs to give their um, communities voting rights over not only happen, not only what happens with their music careers, but even their sports teams. Um, so for me, I just got excited that you could really tokenize anything. Eventually you're going to have, you know, instead of having your deed to your house stored in a piece of paper in a county office, it's going to be just stored on the blockchain and all the information will be accessible online to everyone. And there's going to be no disputing, which is fake, right? So that's initially what got me excited about it is that yes, an NFT is just an entry of data on the blockchain, but really that, that entry can be associated with anything. You can tokenize anything. You could even tokenize legal interests and in copyright, for example. That's one of the main things that I do is help people, um, help creators decide what rights to their artwork they're going to give to the people that buy their NFTs associated with that artwork. Or it might not be artwork, it might be a, an MP3, or it might be, you know, um, a, a digital asset in a video game. So that's sort of one of the main um, intersections between NFTs and the law that I'm focusing on. Oh, that's awesome. And of course, those NFTs now are, there's this whole new market of NIL and college athletes that have kind of opened up an additional space there. Um, so John, going back to you a little bit, we've got sort of this, you know, interesting practice area with NFTs and NIL and intellectual property uh, that Zach's looking at. Um, maybe sort of backing up a little bit, talk a little bit about the agency process, you know, cause there was a while there. I don't know, John, if you still do it, but I think you were an international uh, basketball agent maybe talk a little bit about the agency process, how you become certified. Uh, and then maybe we can get into a little bit about some of the differences between agents and lawyers. Sure. Um, yeah, I was, I was MBPA certified. Um, and I believe I, I was, as soon as I graduated from Thomas Jefferson in 2014 through, I believe 2018. Um, so it, like I like mentioned earlier, you don't necessarily have to go to law school to be, um, 
an agent, although it is highly recommended just because of the opportunities that are going to be afforded to you. Um, as if you didn't have your law degree, you're just going to have that much more opportunities in your careers that not necessarily have to just be law, law, law. It can be other areas as well. Um, there are also different ethical standards that you're held to when you're an agent versus an, a lawyer. Um, you know, it is a higher ethical standard as an attorney. So there are certain rules that you have to follow as an agent versus a, an attorney. And if you're both, you have to be careful, you know, which hat you're wearing and, and obviously following all the rules that may be applicable at that time. So for a while there, I was an agent um, licensed with the MBPA, with the MBA, um, and also was an attorney. So I can I can tell you guys that um, now I'm not licensed anymore. I, I work with agents um, of all, ma mainly basketball and football are my main areas as far as sports go, but a little bit of baseball as well. Um, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, it is a grind. Um, it's a grind, especially, you know, for me, it was because I, I mean, it's a grind in general, the, the business, but also when you're trying to balance being an, an attorney full time, but also being an agent on the side, um, run, trying to grow a business. So um, for me, I dealt with, I had a couple guys that were here in the league, um, but also guys that played professionally overseas in, in Europe and in Asia and Latin America. So as you can imagine, a lot of late night and early morning phone calls, text messages and emails um, take place, you know, during the negotiations phase when you're trying to get your players, you know, onto a team. Um, so that was fun, but, uh, for me, it just, it didn't make sense fiscally because I, as much money as I had going out, you know, as I had coming in, I was just flashing right back out the door to try to stay competitive. Um, and I just didn't have the full time to dedicate to it, but, um, I can say, you know, try to bring it back around full circle with NFTs and, and NIL, you know, I am an attorney and represent college athletes now that we're able to in the NIL space under, you know, you know, per Florida law here, down here for me, but I have seen, um, because it is such a big growing space as Zach has alluded to, um, you know, I had a, a player who got an NFT deal. It was a, you know, an NFT that I certainly hadn't heard of at the time. And as far as I know, isn't, isn't taken off and that none of us would, would hear of if I even was able to say it. Um, but the fact that that opportunity is now available and also not only to, you know, professional athletes, but also college athletes. And obviously, you know, it was all legally compliant for the Florida NIL bill. Um, it ended up obviously being beneficial for everybody. The player benefited from putting money in his pocket, learning how the business structure of this contract was dealt um, and what was asked of him, what his obligations and, and duties were in order to get paid. Um, but also it benefited the, this company that was trying to that build an NFT and they were trying to build it and, and, and build the brand. So um, I think we're, I'm going to see just many more of these that they're only going to increase. I don't think what happened, just know there are drastic differences between being an attorney and an agent. You know, there are different ethical standards. There's a different application process and fees that go with, you know, registering with it and, and your annual dues. So um, just make sure you're, you're read up on the rules and regulations of whichever players association you're going to go with. Cause while they're similar, they're all very different. So MLB will be drastically different from the NBA and the NBA to the NFL and so on and so forth. So, yeah, no, thanks for that, John. Um, so I guess sort of going back to, um, you know, if we could break it down a little bit, uh, Zach, with this sort of idea of IP, um, so in your practice, what kind of IP are you dealing with and practically sort of how are you applying that? You touched on a little bit, but maybe let's dive a little bit deeper. So what kind of work are you you sort of handling and 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, let's let's sort of start there. Cool. So um, just for those who aren't familiar uh, with what is IP intellectual property, one way I could answer this would be to say that it refers to copyright, trademark, and patent law. And I, I could sort of break all those down for you, but I could just, you know, copyright and trademark is soft IP law. Copyright refers to expressions of creativity. It's meant to, um, you know, protect artists and creators. Trademark law is meant to help people understand the source of goods. It's meant to protect consumers um, from mistakenly believing that brands are affiliated with things that they're actually not. And then patents um, are what patent law protects inventions and mechanical processes, et cetera. So I don't do any patent law. um, And we do have a trademark group at our firm, but mostly I'm focused on copyright law. It's helping people understand what their rights are to the fixed um, mediums of expression to their expression of creativity, fixed and tangible mediums. I can break that down too, but essentially artwork, music, um, video games, even computer code, right? So intellectual property refers again to things that are created from the human mind, artistic works, literary works, logos, symbols, things that people cherish dearly and should get credit for creating. Um, So much of what I do again is help people understand, okay, well, when you're dealing with NFTs, if you want to release an NFT and it's going to be associated with a piece of artwork, well, it's the same as releasing almost any other piece of content. You have to make sure that you have the right to use the artwork, to monetize it, to sell it, to advertise it. If someone created you know, a logo or a piece of artwork, you don't just have the right to take it and sell it as an NFT unless you have an agreement with that person. And what happens if that person's not the actual artist, but they're claiming that they are, right? So a lot of what I do is just help people navigate the risks of um, you know, using expressions of creativity, using creative works, um, especially when they're linked to NFTs, which consumers need a lot of education with what they actually get when they buy the NFT. So another thing that I do is in terms of service or in consumer terms for NFT sales, I explain not only what an NFT is and what it's not and what you do and don't get, but again, I have to des- you know specify here are the rights that you get to it, here are the restrictions that you have. Some artists may want to release a project, but they don't want anyone who buys their NFT to make you know pornography out of it or to use it for hate speech, for example. So a lot of it is just you know explaining the do's and don'ts and cans and cannots um, and right. should and shouldn'ts of like what people can do with creative works. No, I love that. Um, and then John, I appreciate that, Zach. And then John, going back to you, talk a little bit about what you do in your practice. Um, and and like Zach, you've had a fascinating um, you know, career and, you know, you've built this, you know, solo practice business, um, you know, but you've obviously worked for agencies, you've done other things. Uh, you were my first and only intern. (laughs) (laughs) That was a fun summer. (laughs) Oh yeah, man. We had a good time. Um, but, uh, and the best intern ever, uh, I, I might, I might throw in there, uh, John, (laughs) John really did such a good job that after that, I said, no, we're, we're, we, we, nobody can compete with John. So, so that's it. Um, but maybe talk a bit about what you do in your practice on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, and then, and also maybe too, if you could highlight uh, a little bit, some of the work that you did, um, as a player agent, obviously the holding the hand stuff and, and, you know, taking care of all the late night phone calls, but maybe practically what, what was some of that work that you did? Sure. Sure. Well, I'll touch on that first. I mean, the way I differentiated being an attorney and being an agent to my guys, because pretty, pretty much every client that I was their agent, I was also their attorney, but not every client I was an attorney. I was also their agent. 
Um, but, you know, as an agent, I was really limited to the on the field or on the court contracts and, you know, would do some of the marketing endorsement deals off the field or off the court. Um, anything else related to, you know, any other legal work. So trademarks and copyrights, like Zach was touching on. I also, like Zach, don't touch patents. I don't have an engineering background. Thankfully, I have a couple, you know, buddies that I would refer to that, that, that have that background. Um, but I too, like, like Zach, deal with trademarks and copyrights. Um, so that would be more of me putting on my legal hat because, um, you know, agents don't really deal with that space. Um, I, do, I work with agents now with my clients that I, that I serve as their attorney. Uh, but back when I was an agent, I really stuck to stuck to just the on the field and on on the court contracts and any endorsement deals I could get. At the time, I'm sure those you know people have heard of Open Doors. Um, back when I was an agent, they were very new. Uh, they were only partnered with professional associations, which now it's kind of flipped. They're they're really known for for being huge in the NIL space and really working with primarily college athletes, even though they still work with pro athletes. So that was early on. I kind of jumped on that train early and heard about it and was getting my guys deals through that. Um, even though it was kind of at, you know, at the lower level of getting started. Um, but like I said, there, there is, like you said, Jeremy, there's a lot of hand holding and late night phone calls. And, uh, luckily, you know, then, and now most of my clients stay out of trouble. So I don't get too many of those late night phone calls. And I also make it very clear to them that I do not do criminal law. So, you know, I, I may be able to help you in, when uh, you get that one phone call, if you're, God forbid, calling from a jail or a prison, but I'll probably refer you to uh, somebody else who's a little bit more in depth with criminal law. Um, but as far as my day-to-day -day here, I get this question a lot. Um, I love that, and Jeremy can attest to this, never a, a dull moment and never the same monotony day-to-day. I didn't go to law school to do that. There are plenty of areas of law. I know Jeremy and Zach can attest that it is pretty much the same routine day after day and, you know, more power to those who do that. But to me, I enjoy the, the, um, you know, spontaneity of, of my job. I love being in control. Like I said, I deal with a lot of contracts. So now as their attorney, you know, I'm working with agents. I, I deal with all of their contract negotiations, drafting review for everything that's off the court or off the field. So everything from those endorsement deals, to, hey, I just got traded and I need to find a house. Can you help me look over this lease agreement um, to everything in between? So, you know, like Zach, a lot of the athletes and entertainers I deal with have a lot of copyrights and trademarks they want to register. And something that they often, you know, not all of them don't know it, but a lot of them don't realize, um, you know, there are a lot of artists out there and athletes that will have, you know, have a logo or a phrase created and all of a sudden they're sl slapping it on T-shirts and they have it on signage all over their, their camp that they're putting on. And it's great, right? But if somebody wants to go ahead and take that and make it their own, unless we've registered for that copyright or that trademark, we have no rights, no legal rights whatsoever to go after anybody for infringement. If we see that they're going to, you know, they're using something that's very similar to ours. So that's something that that often gets overlooked and, and you know needs to be said when it comes to copyrights and trademarks. You don't really have any rights unless you register with that. And a common misconception that you'll hear, um, I'm sure Zach hears this a lot, given he's on the entertainment side a lot more so, is, well, I registered with the Writers Guild, right? I should be good, right? And that's really nothing. Um, that's a common myth too. It, it may look nice and may make you feel a little bit more official and 
um, credible when you're going to make pitches for trying to sell a script that you have the WGA registration, but it doesn't really grant you much legal rights whatsoever. You've got to go through the copyright office, which Zach does pretty regularly. Um, I do general civil litigation too. As I mentioned earlier, I don't do criminal law. So, you know, all civil matters that I, um, that, that my clients may get into, I will handle, you know, we all have plans for what we want to do. And like I told you guys earlier, I have, I had tunnel vision. Um, but for me, uh, I realized things don't always work out the way they're supposed to. The last firm I was at, I left. By the time I left, I was the de facto main litigator. And I went to law school with no aspirations of being a trial attorney. Uh, just wasn't for me. I preferred the transactional route, but uh, I was I was good at it. And, and I really got thrown into the fire, which, which may happen. Um, so, you know, that that gives me the confidence and ability to represent my clients now that I'm off on my own. And we've had, you know, we've had some, some legal actions that we've had to resolve. And thankfully we have. So, um, you know, I do do take care of that for my clients as well. And then, like I mentioned, I did just recently get certified as a mediator. So while I can't mediate my own clients cases for conflict of interest, I can now offer that as another, uh, you know, another arm in my, in my firm as well. So and then the NIL space is just always changing. I know it's something that you and you and I talk about, Jeremy, and that's something that I've dabbled in and I've seen people go all the way in and it's worked out for some and other people. There've been, you know, some, some issues with it because it's so, so new right now. And it's really the wild, wild west, much like crypto and NFTs are. So um, yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell, never a dull day, never the same, which, which I love. Yeah, no, that's awesome, John. And I appreciate you sharing that. It's, um, it's a fascinating thing too. And I always love to hear and see people's stories, you know, and how you start out and where you grow and how you build. And um, it's just, it's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing that. So Zach, back to you on some of these NFTs and um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the metaverse web three and maybe how some of those things play into the entertainment and sports space. you know, yeah. particularly whether that be contracts or what the future might look like in, in that setting. Absolutely. So I'll start. I like talking about Web3 because I don't know if people have. I think it's a lot more simple than people um, give it or, 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 or assume it will be. Um, and to explain what Web3 is, I think it helps to explain what Web1 is and Web2, right? Web3 is supposed to be the third iteration of the Internet. The first iteration of the Internet or Web1 all you could really do was go to a static web page and read content on there. You could read on the internet. And that was, you know, wonderful. That was revolutionary. Web two is the era that we're living in right now of the internet, where you can read content on websites and you can also write content or publish, upload, you know, record, share your own content on platforms like YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera. But to do that, number one, the platform is going to own everything that you upload to it. And number two, you're going to have to have an account with them. You have to oftentimes identify who you are to them. They have the right to restrict you and kick you off your platform, et cetera. Web3 is a third iteration of the internet where not only can you read and write on these platforms, but you will be able to own the content that you do create. And NFTs and blockchain technology are what underlie that ownership. So NFTs, if nothing else, are just records of ownership on the blockchain, which if nothing else is just a public database. Um, So Web3 is what's going to allow creators to monetize 
their work more effectively than the Web2 model. Uh, and it also allows for decentralized or distributed decision-making um, and governance over the procedures and the protocols and the policies and the guidelines of these platforms. The idea being that if you have tokens, certain non-fungible tokens, um, you are part of the community as recorded by the blockchain, and you actually can use those tokens to effectuate votes where everyone's vote is recorded on the blockchain. So there's no way for anyone to fudge the numbers and say, I really want this to happen. Um, and that's really powerful when it comes to Web3 and NFTs. The metaverse is the idea, and I'm saying idea because it does not actually exist, but the metaverse is the idea that we're working towards where there will be a persistent virtual space where your experiences and your achievements and your interactions in one microverse will influence decisions in other parts of the same virtual world. So as just a quick example, you would be able to, let's say, take um, you know, a weapon from one game and bring it to another game, or you will be able to prove that you know you won this many or that you spent this much time um you know in a certain context and now you go to a different world and you have like some kind of physical representation of that or virtual representation of that right so it's really exciting for the entertainment space because um obviously the metaverse is like virtual reality in a way that's what people think of when they think of the metaverse but it's supposed to be virtual reality in a way that is not isolated and fragmented such that once you're kicked off of one platform, everything you've ever worked for on it is gone forever. The idea is that it will, the things that you own and, and accumulate will be, you know, able to be used all across space and time in a different context. Um, it's really exciting because there's going to be different opportunities, not only for socialization, which people are doing, but also for um, events, for business plannings, for shopping, I really just think that eventually we're going to get to a point where people are spending as much time in virtual worlds as they are in the actual world. We already see that people spend eight plus hours a day on their phones. Um, and I just think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to monetize their creativity in the metaverse or maybe their NIL in the metaverse just because there are just simply now more verticals for people to be interacting with and for people to be experiencing. Right. No, that's a fantastic point. And, you know, I think it opens up opportunities for both uh, regulation, whether that be attorneys who help with that on either side, whether it be for the government or for uh, regulatory agencies or or for clients, but then also for sports agents and reps who are building out, uh, monet, you know, monetization opportunities for their clients, you know, so which I think both of you guys um will eventually are, are already involved in, you know, whether it's, it's helping a college athlete or helping a client uh, in the entertainment space. I mean, like one of the fascinating things that I saw Zach was the, the sort of um, like NFT versions of music or, or, or like taking a sample of music and selling it or taking a, a piece of a picture and selling it. You know, like there were so many like different things that came out of NFTs and, um, but of course there's a downside to it as well. Right. And of course, uh, you know, John, you being in, in Florida, the whole FTX thing with, uh, with the Miami heat and them losing out on that. I'm kind of curious what's going to happen with crypto.com and, and the Lakers, 
Um, you know, Sardar, maybe if you guys could both talk about that, uh, maybe some of the the downside of, uh, and maybe we'll start with you, Zach, some of the downside of uh, uh, sort of the NFTs and, and crypto and and how regulation may, and of course, this ties into NIL too, because there's been a big call, like you said, John, about the Wild West and NIL. And so maybe talk a little bit about from a legal perspective, how uh, some of the problems that come out of this and maybe some solutions. Okay, so specifically with the SBF, I'll start generally by just saying that there are a lot of growing pains with cryptocurrency, NFTs, etc. Not only are people still trying to understand what they are, but they're trying to understand how they can interact with them and how to acquire them. With that, you see a lot of people, um, there are just a lot of scammers, there's just a lot of impersonation, there's a lot of malicious links, there's a lot of social engineering, right? And because people are people don't trust themselves enough to be familiar with and understand the technology. What they do is they trust third parties to hold onto it for them. And that's sort of the unfortunate irony with the, uh, with the FTX situation is that yes, this person, this person who, you know, this crypto exchange stole and lost or, you know, custodied and lost $10 billion of investors funds. It sort of highlights the point in crypto that you don't need these third parties to be managing your funds, right? So the whole point of cryptocurrency is that you don't need banks to manage your finance for you. It's supposed to be decentralized. So John mentioned this earlier. I, I don't think that in the grand scheme of things that this, you know, undoubtedly horrible fraud, right? I'm not denying like the impact that he had on all the victims. I think it's horrible what he did. And obviously, um, you know, it's not obvious whether there will be consequences for it, but uh, mm-hmm. I do think that it's important for people to understand that it's a it's a roadblock on a long journey, a decades long journey of adoption of cryptocurrency and changing not only our financial system but our entertainment system, and you know all these other kinds of infrastructures that we've grown so unaccustomed to. I think that someone mentioned this earlier. Does the lack of regulation make the space harder for me as a lawyer? I actually think the regula- lack of regulation makes the space harder for all of my clients because with, with the lack of regulation, it's almost easier for us as lawyers to explain to our clients that, listen, there's no clear-cut guidelines on how you're supposed to do this. The best we can do is take older laws and you know extrapolate those principles and apply them to this. We can't tell you that if you want to release an NFT this way, you're not going to be violating securities laws, right? So I, someone mentioned that in the comments. Um, so obviously, we are excited for regulation because it will make it easier for us to give people you know, more concrete advice. But I actually don't find it particularly troubling at this stage of my career that there isn't a lot of regulation. I actually think it's sort of the exciting um, you know, part of what's happening right now. But I, I do think that with um, FTX situation, there will be regulation that comes from it. I don't think the U.S. is going to regulate crypto to the extent that, you know, no one in the country gets to use it. Uh, Biden has come out with an executive order and kind of explained that he's interested in, in regulating digital assets responsibly and promoting innovation. So I'm not terribly worried about that. Um, but I do think that my biggest concern is um, regulation that sort of just prohibits the people who need crypto and NFTs the most from accessing it and and turning it into what people think it is today, which is just a way for rich people to get richer. When really it's supposed, it was initially thought of as a way to get people who need access to financial services the most 
um, that kind of access with the least amount of friction. So it's really, really interesting. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. And then John, how about on your side with regard to NIL and maybe some of the things that you've come across in terms of either lack of regulation and maybe some solutions that, or, or maybe even sort of where you see the industry kind of kind of moving forward? Sure. Um, well, I think just to piggyback off of Zach's point, I think they are kind. They go hand in hand. That there is a lot of, you know, a lot of shrugging going on by by us attorneys, and and uh, when we're getting asked questions, only because there isn't something concrete precedent that's been in place for decades that we can point to. Um, so, like Zach said, we're going to have to, at least with regard to NFTs and crypto, you've used the laws that exist that can be the most applicable um, and have hopefully the most, you know, be, be the most distinguishing here as far as authority goes. But, you know, and the same kind of goes with NIL. NIL is, is really interesting because it really is a lot of endorsement deals and marketing deals that have been going on for, for decades with professional athletes, but it's very nuanced. And there are elements of other areas of law that get roped into this because we're dealing with college athletes and not professionals. So, you know, the whole debate about amateurism and should they be treated as employees? And there, there are there are little pending lawsuits going on right now, uh, some at the Supreme Court level that are deciding whether or not athletes are going to be classified as employees. Will they have the ability to unionize? And then that means they can negotiate and and uh, collectively bargain for salaries and better benefits. And, and how does that trickle down? Does that is it going to be even across the board for every athlete from the starting quarterback of the football team to the, you know, backup diver on the swimming and diving team? Probably not. Um, so then you run into title nine concerns. And, you know, I remember having discussions with um, now the former athletic director at university of Miami and his biggest concern, we met uh, about a month before the pandemic has happened, which, and then about six months later, less than six months later is when kind of NIL really started to ramp up and Florida, I know was at the forefront to kind of push other states to follow suit. But the athletic directors, then his biggest concern was title nine, because he thought, am I going to be strapped to, to afford, you know, can I make sure that the basketball and football players get certain deals when I have to, you know, equate the same amount of opportunities for the women's teams that maybe don't get as much publicity or bring in as much revenue. So I, I can tell you that I'm confident that based on my research and, you know, listening to podcasts, reading articles that I think there will be at least in the collegiate NIL space with college athletes, I think there will be a little bit of a, uh, cautiousness with with regard to doing any sort of nft or crypto deals um i don't know if that'll take you know if that's going to take place at the professional level i mean i haven't heard any stories or seen anything about players converting their salaries to crypto like i know odell beckham did um you know and i know he lost a significant chunk of that having said that i think um bitcoin and ethereum are as, as established as you can be in the crypto space for something so new I think the big issue, like Zach touched on before, that you know the whole point of this space was to, like Zach said, afford those who are less fortunate and may not have the opportunities and privileges that others have to, you know, kind of go live the American dream and find something and build it, you know, to become a crypt, uh, a um, excuse me, a Bitcoin or an Ethereum. And the problem is there's so many, you know, poop coins out there, uh, you know, and there's another term for them, but I'm not going to use it for 
for the podcast, but there are a lot of bad coins out there that are trying to be the next uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum. And they're really, you know, that's where people are losing money because they're trying to, you know, put a lot of backing into something that really may not take off. So I think there'll be hesitancy in the NIL space for NFT deals and crypto next year. Um, I don't think there'll be any sort of universal legislation from Congress. I know several congressmen in both the House and the Senate from both blue and red states, you know, not to get political, but that's that's one thing that seems to be bipartisan is there, you know, there should be some sort of universal legislation. Um, and, and I think most people, most people in Congress would be in favor of the athlete. But they also, I think, want to be careful that they don't want to go too far beyond where, you know, now they're basically professional athletes. So um, I don't think there'll be reg regulation or, reg you know, legislation next year. But don't be surprised if you see more states doing what Florida did and several others, which is repealing their laws. So briefly, when the NIL first came on two, two years ago, these states came out with laws very quickly. And then they started to look at each other's laws and say, well, the schools in that state have an unfair advantage because they can, uh, by their law, they can, the schools are not restricted from, you know, putting together what is called a collective, which are basically a collection of fans and boosters who financially back, you know, deals that can be brought to their athletes. So Florida, like many other states, repealed their law and changed it. So the schools like University of Florida, University of Miami, Florida State can do that. So they can compete with schools from other states. So I think you're going to see more of that. I think you're going to see more states uh, allowing NIL at the high school level. Uh, I think there's there's got to be 15 to 20 now, if not more states that are allowing high school athletes uh, to, to benefit and, and, and profit off their NIL. And if you really think about it, that should be across the board everywhere. Any of you who are not student athletes uh, or any anyone who's listening who's not a student athlete, if you're just a regular college at, college student or a high school student and you have a great presence and brand on social media, there's nothing that prohibits you from getting and being able to enter into contracts with these companies and endorse their products or services. But un until just two years ago, college athletes couldn't do it. Still, high school athletes, a lot, of, a lot of them can't do that. So I'm hoping that this will be universal across the board for high school athletes by the end of next year or the next couple of years. Um, and hopefully, you know, within the next couple of years, we'll have some sort of universal legislation. So we all can look to one set of rules and laws, um, that everyone's on kind of a level playing field. Yeah. Now, really good points, you guys, um, solid analysis, John and Zach, I, I want to maybe close with, um, um, with one question for each of you two, and maybe just share a little bit of word, words of wisdom for folks who are, you know, up and coming, trying to make it. I mean, I guess we all three of us are still trying to make it right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, but I always enjoy hearing like people's, you know, wisdom and insights, maybe Zach with you and then John will close with you. Absolutely. So I'll start by saying reach out to the people who are where you want to be and connect with them over your actual shared interests. That's what got me to where I am. But number two, and perhaps most important of all, don't settle for a job that you hate. You are the only one who can make your dreams come true. So you're either going to try to make that happen or you're not going to. So don't settle. Amen. I love that. All right. And then John, how about you, my friend? Yeah. Well said by Zach and, and, and he can, you know, attest there's a reason why we attorneys have one of, if not the highest burnout rate addiction rate, because a lot of us get into this, you know, field because we think it's lucrative and, 
there's a whole other conversation we get into about student loan debt. Um, so Zach's right, you know, don't take a job just because, you know, you want to make money and you want to pay off your debts. I mean, that's important too. You have to live and, and you'd be able to pay for what you need to live. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be happy and have a good, um, you know, work-life balance. Uh, so I'll echo that sentiment. And then the biggest thing I'll say is you have to be able to sell yourself. Um, you know, again, piggybacking off Zach, you talked about reaching out to people that are in your industry. Um, Jeremy is the king of, of networking. I learned from the best. Um, it, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable going and, you know, meeting people for the, probably the first time, whether it's through zoom or in person and waiting that couple of minutes that you get with them to try to make an impression and get their business card, their email, whatever the case may be. But you just have to do it. It's part of the business. If you don't do it, your competition is going to, and you're going to, they're going to pass you by. And, you know, to go back to selling yourself, we sell ourselves in every situation. If you think about it in our daily lives, you sell yourself when you're trying to court somebody to date them, when you're trying to make friends, when you're trying to get a job, when you're trying to, to sign a client, uh, whatever the case may be, you're always selling something. So the sooner you realize that and, and try to you know hone your skills in that regard of highlighting your attributes, bringing to the table what you can do to help you know, the situation or whoever you're trying to, to close, whatever, if it's a person or if it's a deal and what differentiates you and sets you apart from your competition, because you're going to be selling yourself at every stage of your life, especially going forward. And if you're going to be in sports and the legal field. So, you know, know that, you know, be confident in your abilities and make sure that whoever you're talking to and trying to sell knows that those abilities that you have and what they can do to, to you know, to have them ultimately sign with you. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, well, John and Zach, you guys have been awesome and I appreciate you taking your time. And I know, um, it's already late and, uh, John, obviously you're on the East coast. So it's, you know, it's uh, what almost 10 o'clock for you, but, uh, really appreciate you guys both giving your time tonight. So thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. All right, folks. Thanks again for listening in. This show has been brought to you by bet online. Thank you again to our show sponsor. I am Jeremy Evans, your host. Look forward to uh, having you back next week. Thank you again for making us the number one sports law podcast in the world. Look forward to being with you soon. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Thank you again. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel and I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.